Chapter 14 of Prowling About Panama. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prowling About Panama by George A. Miller. Chapter 14 The Panama Canal. Probably most pilgrims to Panama think of the canal as the outstanding feature of the American tropics. And in one way, such it is. The traveler will probably want to see the canal first, and he will find it well worthy of preferential position. The story of construction days and engineering problems has been ably told elsewhere and does not belong here. Every intelligent traveler will secure some good account of the work and read it as something that every man should know. It is the romance deluxe of engineering achievement. The author of the Arabian Nights Tales would have dug the canal by the sweep of a wand or the rubbing of an old lamp. But the American method is vastly more interesting and is much more likely to remain in working order. Aladdin's engineering feats had a way of failing to stay put if the wrong man got hold of the lamp. But the present canal shows no signs of disappearing overnight. Before war conditions put a wall around everything, seeing the canal was one of the pleasantest and easiest of touring tasks. All was in plain view, or could readily be found by asking, and most of the men on duty thought it a pleasure to answer questions. Of camera fiends and sketchers and notebook makers, there were a plenty, but the war stopped all that for a time. Anybody could look at the canal from almost any point along its survey, but the locks and docks were strictly private affairs. There are statistics in abundance to be had for the asking concerning the big ditch. Experts take pleasure in supplying us with entertainment by compiling and translating figures into interesting statements. For instance, enough excavating was done on the canal to dig a tunnel 14 feet in diameter through the center of the earth, 8,000 miles of boring. It takes a little time to comprehend the meaning of a tunnel from Valparaiso, Chile, to Peking, China, or straight through from the North Pole to the southern tip of the world. Enough concrete was used to build a wall four feet thick and 25 feet high clear around the state of Delaware. Probably by walking the 266 miles represented by this wall, one might understand the amount of concrete involved in the canal construction. The enormous size of the locks can only be understood by walking their length through the underground tunnels and passageways in which is located the marvelous machinery of their operation. To stand on the floor of a dry lock and look up at a lock gate 80 feet high, 7 feet thick, and 65 feet wide is an impressive experience. But to see a pair of such gates swing open and shut at the touch of the finger is something to be remembered. The emergency dams look like a steel girder bridge, which indeed they are, and provide against accidents by as ingenious a piece of mechanism as the entire system affords. Enormous iron chains with hydraulic springs are stretched across the entrance to the locks to stop any reckless ship which might otherwise strike the gates. The gate and dam alone may be classed as one of the world's greatest achievements. The builders of the canal may be pardoned for taking pride in the fact that the entire construction cost, down to the present day, three years after the opening of the canal, is still within the original estimate of $37 million which figure included the $40 million paid to the French for the work of the earlier construction. This means that the cost of the canal was a little less than $4 apiece for every inhabitant of the United States. 
the national prestige alone, gained by the successful completion of the work, has repaid this $4 investment many times over. Before the European War, $400 million seemed like a good deal of money. Today, we think of it as a very small sum. It is easy to find numerous compilations of figures which astonish and perplex us, even though they do help us to understand the magnitude of the work. And nothing is more disappointing than to try to understand the canal by looking at it from any point along the bank. You can't see the canal for the water. It is no different from a great western irrigating ditch and looks like any quiet river. There are no marks of effort or strain anywhere. And when one looks about on the verdant and peaceful landscape, he half believes that the tales of the stirring times back in construction days must have been dreams. Culebra Cut looks like the Hudson Palisades, and Gatton Lake is like any other beautiful inland sea in a rolling country. The famous Gatton Dam is merely a dike at the end of the lake, and the marvelous spillway is only a picturesque waterfall in the middle of a dam. As for the locks, they are big concrete chambers looking very much like a paved street on top and revealing nothing of the complicated mechanism below. And the germ-proof towns are like any other spotlessly clean villages with screened houses and show nothing to cause us astonishment. Any superficial view of the canal is disappointing. It is like trying to understand a deep mine by looking at the mouth of the shaft. The channel is full of water, the machinery is out of sight, the great achievements of sanitation have been largely removals of materials, microbes, and conditions that have left no trace behind to tell their tale. In one way, it is a negative result. The idea of the canal across the isthmus is nearly as old as the discovery of the isthmus by white men, but it remained for the intrepid builder of the Suez Canal to really undertake in earnest the project of a waterway between the two oceans. De Lesseps was both engineer and promoter and never really understood the size of his project. He had succeeded at Suez, but that was a farmer's ditch beside the Calubra Cut and the Gatton Dam, and the famous engineer was a very old man when he began on the Panama Project. The high prestige of his name brought him money on a stock investment basis, and when unprincipled schemers got control of the company, the crash and scandal were immense. De Lesseps himself became insane as a result of the worry and disgrace and died in a hospital. The French attempt began on January 1, 1880, with a great deal of oratory and champagne, also the official blessing of the Bishop of Panama, which seems to have been something of a Jonah on the enterprise. In striking contrast was the beginning of the American work, when a few men climbed out of a boat into water waist-deep and began cutting down jungle brush. The actual construction and excavation work began on the isthmus by the French was of a very high order, and much of it was used by the Americans. The two causes which defeated the French were reckless financing at home and tropical diseases on the isthmus. So bad did the disease conditions become that in the fall months of 1884, 55,000 people died. And in the single month of September 1885, the total rate reached the high-water mark of 177 per thousand of population. The total of lives lost on the enterprise will never be known but is far greater than that of many wars which have received a conspicuous notice on the historical page. The collapse of the de Lesseps undertaking was followed by the organization of the new canal company, upon which followed a chapter of bargainings and treaties and negotiations and bickerings, with the object of selling out the rights and holdings of the company to the highest bidder. In all of these, the Panama Railroad figured very largely, 
and the Republic of Colombia kept a watchful eye on the main chance for herself. The story of President Roosevelt's large part in the American undertaking of the independence of Panama and the organization of the American effort is one of the romances of American history. On November 18, 1903, Washington recognized the new Republic of Panama and later paid $10 million for the Canal Zone and entered into a treaty guaranteeing the peace and perpetuity of the, of the Isthmian Republic. Thus ended a half-century of riot and revolution and rebellion, which was stated to have included 53 revolutions in 57 years. Relations between the early officials on the Canal Zone and the rulers of Panama were not ideal. Some of the Americans seemed to have a real genius for offending the finer sensibilities of the natives. The beginning of the American attempt is not a chapter of which anybody is very proud. The effort to dig the canal from Washington under a mass of red tape which tied the hands of the men on the isthmus proved an impossible undertaking. The president succeeded in effecting a reorganization which helped some, but not until all red tape was cut and army engineers were put in charge was anything like real efficiency obtained. Three great engineers were connected with the work, Wallace, Stevens, and Gertels, and to each of these belongs credit for the very high order of work done. While the man who finished the job bears the outstanding name in connection with the canal, without exception, the engineers who worked under the first two men speak in the highest terms of the work that they accomplished. No snapshot resume of the building days, nor tourist instantaneous exposure of visits can reveal, nor appreciate, the big problems that confronted the engineers. It all looks easy enough now, but it was very different then. Good health on the canal zone seems a very simple matter now, and such it is. But when the doctors and sanitary engineers began work, it was an exceedingly serious situation that they undertook to cure, and without their work, there could be no canal today. The complete elimination of the last case of yellow fever has made entirely harmless the mosquito carriers where they occasionally appear on the isthmus. The best test of the work of the sanitary department is the fact that the zone and terminal cities have remained clean and that there is no indication of relapse. Before work could begin, a whole system of transportation had to be organized, a steamer line put into operation, and an immense purchasing department gotten into working order. Before men could be brought to the isthmus to do the work, some provision had to be made for housing and feeding, and the question of materials, supplies, food, fuel, recreation, and education was no small matter. To dig the canal required not only engineers and officials, but an army of common laborers and the labor question was not easy. The Panamanian might have dug the canal, but he did not do it. He did not want to do it, and the probability is that he never could have done it. Employers on the zone refused to hire Panamanians for canal work. Chinese coolies might have been imported from Canton or Amoy, but Panama is a long way from southern China and still further from India, and no intelligent man ever seriously proposed importing Hindus. If enough Panamanian Indians could have been found, they might have done the work. But the native Indian is a very uncertain and fragmentary factor of life on the isthmus. At this juncture, the West Indian filled the breach and supplied the labor for the job. Up to 45,000 of them were employed at one time. And with the ebb and flow of the human tide between the isthmus and the Caribbean islands, several times that number came to the isthmus. Somebody else might have supplied the labor, but the fact is West Indian did do the work and at least deserves proper recognition, therefore. The problems of suitable construction machinery were in a way simple. 
given a definite task, it remained to devise mechanical means to meet the conditions. In practice, however, the case was not so simple as this sounds, and some very difficult knots were untangled before the work was well underway. Some of the old French machinery was used clear through the construction period, but the jungle was sewn with scrap iron of the old French equipment that has only recently been removed. The electrical and mechanical equipment for the operation of the locks is a marvel of adaptation and invention, and nothing short of a technical description can do the subject justice. To see the locks in operation is to wonder at the mechanical contrivances which seem almost intelligent, and some of the design work is the result of real genius. Of engineering problems proper, it is better to let the engineer speak with intelligence, but any layman can stand on Gold Hill and, by vigorous use of the imagination, see something of the tremendous work that has been done since the first shovelful of earth was turned on that New Year's Day in 1880. Whether the French engineers anticipated landslides at Culebra is not clear, but the American engineers knew from the start that the porous soil would cave in more or less at that point. What it actually did do surpassed the expectations of those who surveyed the work. When the banks began to cave north of Gold Hill, the surrounding country got the idea and followed suit so fast that it looked as though the 10-mile strip would all be needed. I spent a day in the Big Cut in January 1917 and noted the rapid crumble of the historic bank at this troubled point. The following night, the channel filled up for a length of 800 feet and shipping was suspended. Then the dredgers went at it hammer and tongs, and in three days and nights, they had cleared a channel through that enormous mass of material, and on the fourth day, ships were again passing in safety. It was a fine illustration of the way dirt was made to fly in the old days. Some otherwise intelligent people have utterly failed to comprehend the size of the task involved in the mere digging of the canal. One high official advocated the cure of slides by digging back a mile on each side of the bank. Verily, he knew not what he said and a member of Congress, on visiting the canal, reported that he was still in favor of a sea-level route. Competent engineers assured him that to construct a sea-level canal from ocean to ocean would require at least 50 years of continuous labor. The wisdom of Theodore Roosevelt's ideas has been forever vindicated by experience. Some practical man has said that no man can know how great is the task of making the earth until he tries to move a little of it. The congressman needed a little pick-and-shovel experience. Administrative problems are not especially acute on the zone, but the completed task gives room for a world of appreciation of the general efficiency with which the whole work was carried out, and the smooth-running machinery of the executive today attests the thoroughness with which the departmental system was organized and initiated by the men whose names will always be associated with the work. The task of operating the canal today would not be very great, nor would it require a very large army of employees, but without any preconceived plan, various related industries, to the number of six or seven, have grown up about the canal administration and operation, and the canal zone government today is doing a number of things never contemplated in the original plans. The routing of ships is directly connected with the coal supply, and a great coaling plant stands at Cristobal, a large cold storage plant, makes possible the supplying of refrigerated goods to shipping countries. While the trans-shipping business at Cologne is yet in its infancy, the docks there are already a very considerable factor in canal activities. Sanitation and public health, of course, require a trained force of specialists. The canal employees must eat, 
and the commissary hotel and restaurant are a very important branch of the service. The quartermaster looks after the housing problem, and where there are 5,000 Americans, most of them living with families, the educational problem necessitates a department by itself. The Balboa docks employ hundreds of men at high wages. In connection with the food problem come the large farming operations conducted on the canal zone. An army of laborers is employed, and the proceeds of the plantations and poultry yards is sold through the commissary's stores. From the beginning, much attention has been paid to the social life and recreation needs of these exiles from home. A chain of government clubhouses runs across the isthmus, one in each town, where reading rooms, games, gymnasiums, refreshment counters, discussion clubs, concerts, dances, cigar stores, and motion picture programs are provided for young and old. During the dry season, baseball is widely indulged in and plays an important part in the social and recreational life of the zone. Next to the spotless town features of the zone, the visitor is impressed by the smooth-running system through which everything is done. There may be officials who are grouchy and will not take time to answer questions, but I have never met one. The routine of operation and maintenance has succeeded the drive of construction days when Governor Goethals established the famous open house on Sunday morning and received anybody who had anything to say to him. The last black laborer could see the governor if he wished, and many of them did so. The public-be-hanged attitude of occasional small executives in the States is delightfully absent. The machinery of administration outwardly works as smoothly as do the great gates of the locks. On the inner circle there are, of course, problems and sometimes personalities, but they rarely escape from the closets where ghosts are supposed to remain. When the visitor begins to look about and beyond the canal, he becomes aware of the conquered wilderness, where once was dense and impassable jungle, now sweeps smooth and verdant hills. One-time fever swamps are now drained meadows, and the never-failing drip from the sanitary oil barrel induces a very high mortality among the mosquitoes. Broad acres of rich jungle lands have been cleared and are now model farms. Over the grass-grown hills wander thousands of fat cattle, increasing in number every year. The jungle of the canal zone is a very tame and conquered jungle. The real article lies beyond the line where there is plenty. It was once thought that the best thing to do with the jungle was to let it run wild after its kind, as a barrier to invasion. A little experimenting proved that an army could cut its way through the jungle so fast that the brush was nothing more than a screen for the advance of the enemy. If the visitor stays long enough and gets close enough, he will learn of things which might have been done differently on a second trial. But regulation and adjustment have pretty well cleared up the points in question, and, taking it all through, the canal is as satisfactory and complete a job as the world has ever seen. The Americans who live on the zone are an interesting social experiment without knowing it. They form one of the unique communities of the world. Somebody has said that the zone situation is described by the world as suburban, but that does not express it. Every man lives in a government-furnished house, rent-free. Free also is his electric light and a ration of fuel for cooking. Ice is so cheap that it is practically free. He buys everything that he eats and wears in the commissary stores where goods are sold to him at cost. So they are, at what they cost him. Prices now do not differ materially from retail figures in the States on the same goods. If housekeeping tires, there are the commissary restaurants, clean and wholesome, 
always available for good meals at reasonable prices. Good schools are furnished free, of course, for the children. There is a free dispensary where all minor ailments are treated and medicine furnished free. The government hospitals are among the best in the world, and employees' rates are less than the cost of living at home. The zone man is under civil service rules, receives a generous vacation, with a steamer rate to New York so low that it covers little more than his meals en route. The scale of his wages is based on an increase of 20% over the pay for the same class of service in the United States. Cheap household service abounds and is about as satisfactory as household service is anywhere. If he is lonesome, the government clubhouse, with its community life, good recreation, and well-stocked reading room, is always open to him, practically without cost, and if he gets tired of the zone, there is always Panama and the interior country with its never-failing places of interest and exploration. Here are all the advantages of the socialized state, and no working men or clerks in all the world are so well paid, or taken care of, as these Americans on the zone. It is a fine, efficient piece of provision for the men who do the work. Therefore, the zone dweller should be a satisfied and happy man, dreading nothing but the day when he must return to the States. In practice, however, the American on the canal zone is not so contented as the external features of his lot would lead one to suppose. There is an undercurrent of petty complaint, directed at everything in general, and indicative of a state of mind, as much as of actual evils existent. These complaints are the result of too much community life, without room for individual ownership or initiative. The followers of Bellamy should come to the zone and stay long enough to get a few pointers. The trouble is that there is, necessarily, much of uniformity of housing, commissary, social, and living conditions. The American people are, after all, strong individualists, and every man likes to have something that is distinctively his own. When people work all day together, play ball together till mealtime, all eat the same things, at the same price, from the same store, on exactly similar tables, with identical dishes, when they go to the movies together and walk home down the same street together and sleep in houses and beds all alike, they sometimes develop cases of nerves. On the testimony of one of the efficient medical men of the zone, a lot of nervousness disappeared when war work absorbed the attention and energies of the patriotic Americans, who enthusiastically devoted their spare time to various forms of win-the-war industry. The problem of raising children on the zone is admittedly beset with difficulties. Health conditions are good enough, but many people are prone to regard life on the zone as a general vacation from the standards and disciplines of the homeland, and children are often allowed to do very much as they please. Many families employ a servant, and there is no economic need for children doing any useful act of work. An unusual degree of irresponsibility results. It will be time enough to correct them when we get back to the States, is a common remark. Of course, there are many families where the highest ideals are earnestly maintained, and no more faithful fathers and mothers may be found anywhere than here in this colony of voluntary exiles. But American life on the canal is at present apt to be regarded more as a vacation experience than as a serious attempt to face the whole problem of living. Moral and religious safeguards are not absent. The early plan of providing government-paid chaplains ended with construction days, and, under the leadership of a group of far-sighted laymen, the Union Church of the Canal Zone was organized in February 1914. 
All Protestant denominations, except two, now cooperate with this piece of ecclesiastical statesmanship. A centralized organization maintains work in all the civilian gold towns along the canal, employing four pastors who must be ordained men of evangelical churches. The Union Church does not regard itself as a denomination, but as a federation for Christian service. No attempt is made to establish a doctrinal position, and members are not asked to sever their relations with their home churches. The excellent results attained under this management speak volumes for the wisdom of the plan and the earnestness and ability of the men who have fostered the enterprise from the start. The Union Church has devoted its benevolent monies to opening a mission station at David in western Panama, in cooperation with the Panama mission of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Morally, the canal zone is as clean as any place on earth. The improvement of moral conditions in Cologne and Panama has done much to make the lives of Americans wholesome and to decrease the dangers to childhood that have existed in the past. There will always be Americans on the canal zone, and a few of them will exercise the great American prerogative of speaking their minds, but most of them will be better off here than at any other time in their lives. End of chapter 14